think whatever your thing is, like if it's science or mathematics or religion, um, if you read a book on that topic and it's a good book, you feel like someone's explaining not just that thing, but the whole world to you. Um, I was reading James Wood's uh, How Fiction Works today, and I was feeling like it was waking me up to how people work, how stories work, how we understand the world we live in. The really exciting thing about reading, and the reason we have this podcast, is because literature awakens us up to our deepest held feelings, beliefs, and intuitions. And we're really excited to bring in interesting Atlantans to talk about those things. So we have a great guest for you today. Yeah, we have a... I guess I am... This is one of those guests where, like, you you kind of send a message out, and you're like, you don't know if you're going to hear anything, because we're just some piddling, we're just some little podcast thing. And then, like, within, like, five minutes, she responds, and I just, it was like this hallelujah chorus, you know, it was just, we were so excited. We actually uh, heard Angel sing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we want to welcome to the show B. Wynn. She is running for House District 89 here yeah. in Atlanta, and we are so happy to have her on. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I guess what you didn't know is I'm a huge book geek. I was an well, English major, got my bachelor and master's. <laughs> no, we actually need to talk about this. You know what reminded? So we've had you on our minds for a couple of months now. We need to, and that's always that nervousness of like, she's not going to want to talk to us. But what, what, what Ian Tim and I. Tim thought that. I think yeah. we're great. <laughs> I was like, this is nerd heaven. Yes, yeah, I'm okay. in. <laughs> well, what reminded us, what reminded us to get in touch with you is we saw on Twitter, you know, uh, we, we took the, the podcast to the streets at the Decatur Book Festival, and we noticed uh, on Twitter or on Facebook somewhere you mentioned that you moderated a panel, and we were like, oh, she reads. This is, <laughs> yeah. like, like, we got to have her on. So we were so excited to, uh, to like read about that, and so we knew that you were a reader, and so that's what reminded us. So I just sent an email like right then and there. And can you tell us what, what you were moderating? I, I feel bad. I had no idea you were even going to be there. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. So I was moderating a panel. Um, there was there were two books on that panel. And so one is called The Best We Could Do, which is a graphic novel written by a Vietnamese woman who was a boat refugee. Mm-hmm. And then the other book is called The Broken Country, written by Paisley Rectal. Um, she was a... Um, She's a writer who who focused on Vietnamese refugees, mm. um, particularly one incident where a man in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, bought a knife at a grocery store and went into the parking lot and stabbed two white men. Mm. Um, and so her book was about the trauma inflicted on refugees that are resettled in America after Vietnam. And it made sense for me to moderate the panel because I'm the daughter of former refugees who came here mm. in 79. Wow. Um, so the the first novel, the graphic novel, is written by um, T. Bowie. Um, and, you know, that one really resonated with me because it reminded me so much of my own family. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I, growing up, uh, before I discovered this genre called immigrant fiction and <laughs> immigrant <laughs> memoir, yeah. um, I didn't really see myself reflected in a lot of the oh, things that I mm-hmm. read. Mm-hmm. Did your, were your parents, uh, when they came in 79, they came straight to Atlanta or were they somewhere else in the U.S.? Or No, so they actually had a very traumatic escape uh-huh. um, before they came over here. My dad was held a political prisoner for three uh-huh. years. And when he was released, my parents made the decision to flee and they built a boat in secrecy over the course of a year. And they left with about 30 other family members. Uh-huh. Uh, they were found stranded at sea by a Thai fisherman and he took them in on his fishing vessel and they were in refugee camp in Thailand before they were resettled um, in Iowa in oh, wow. 1979. Wow. And there's wow. a really great um, historical context to how that happened. The governor of Iowa at the time 
was a Republican who saw footage of refugees being pushed back into the sea. Um, and he personally reached out to President Carter and said, I will take in as many refugees as wow. our state can hold. So mm. that's how my parents ended up in Iowa. Yeah. Wow. And there's that's a amazing. lot. That's been an interesting <laughs> thing about the refugee situation, too. Yeah. State by state, there's a lot of difference between how how welcome refugees feel when they arrive yeah. there like we've we've worked with refugee families from here who mm -hmm. are like i want to go to utah and i was like utah <laughs> you know? yeah. like white mormon country what's but utah is like a really hospitable state to refugees yeah. so there's there's is actually a lot and we'll talk about this a little later too but there's a lot of stuff that like people get really into national level politics mm -hmm. um but what I've discovered is like local issues can come down to like 100 votes, you know, and yeah. they yeah. can have major implications for the lives of uh, people in a given place, particularly. So if you want to if you want your vote to really count, it's the local stuff mm -hmm. where it makes yep. a huge difference. And so that's another reason why we're excited to have you here. Can you talk about what you're running for, what your campaign is based on, that kind of thing? Sure. Um, so I'm running for my state house district seat. Um, I'm in District 89. So it starts at um, a little portion of Druid Hills and it runs all the way down south to Ellenwood. So mm -hmm. it's all DeKalb County. It's um, a large district. We've got about 55,000 people in there. It's really diverse across the board. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one out of 180 house seats in Georgia. Wow. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, and our current leader um, is uh, Stacey Abrams, who okay. is House Minority Leader. Um, she's a woman who's broken many ceilings for a lot of us, and yeah. she has stepped out of that seat to run for governor. So that has been a really exciting transition to watch. Yeah. Um, I'm running for that seat because I've been involved in state politics for the last five years and in nonprofit for almost 10 years. And um, that combination of understanding how policy impacts people and being able to work so in, so intimately with communities, it mm -hmm. really shows you how our decisions at the top impact yeah. everybody else. Um, I also am an organizer and an activist, and I think that's really critical, especially in this environment now where we need people to come out and be mobilized. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I do um, think is really important is when you work so closely with communities, you have a moral compass that yeah. always reminds you of the why. And so being yeah. in all these spaces with under-resourced um, public schools and refugee families and DACA recipients, um, it's really relevant to yeah. what's happening in our political climate today. Yeah, absolutely. What I love is how you're, you're kind of in that arena where like the politics that affect personal lives, that affect human yeah. lives. And it's been really just, you know, we paid attention to you in, in the periphery and been really excited. But then to go through and read a lot of stuff you've been directly involved in, was just really heartwarming yeah. sounds strange but it was very heartwarming yeah. and so i i was going to see if you maybe you could share a little bit about some of the stuff especially um the pursuing justice for rape victims act um i think that that definitely stood out that i guess it was 2015 when that passed yeah. right yeah and that for me um like i'd heard about it and i was paying attention to it but then to like to to you know look into you before we were getting ready and to find out how how connected it was was really powerful um yeah, can you share a little bit about that? Sure. So um, I was fortunate enough to be part of a fellowship called Georgia Women Policy mm -hmm. Institute. And what the institute does is it shows you exactly how legislation is written and passed and carried through mm -hmm. the state legislature. And an issue um, that we worked on was a bill called Pursuing Justice for Rape Victims. There was a backlog of rape kits that were untested across the nation. Um, there was some federal funding to address it. 
and most states had already passed provisions uh, to prevent it from happening again, and Georgia hadn't passed anything yet. Hmm. And so what we wanted to do was pass a provision that said if somebody comes in and gets tested, then that rape kit should be moved from hospitals to the Georgia Bureau of Investigations within a certain time frame so that the backlog wouldn't build up again. Yeah. Um, I was very naive. I thought it would pass easily. I didn't see it as being a partisan issue. And um, we ran into um, a major roadblock and the bill was stalled and we pretty much thought it was dead and it wouldn't yeah. have a chance to, to pass. Um, what ended up happening was, um, you know, towards the last week of session, we went to the media. Um, I organized sexual assault survivors. And, you know, many of the survivors are are my friends. Um, if you look mm -hmm. at the statistics with one in four, I mean, I have four sisters. I have a mother. Um, and so I personally reached out to my network and organized um, survivors. And we went down there and talked to every single Republican senator. And the bill ended up passing at midnight on the last day of session. Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> we were all holding our breaths watching um, from the gallery. Yeah. Um, we knew that it was going to pass after we had lobbied all of our Republican senators um, because of the response and the political pressure. Yeah. It's also very hard, I think, when you humanize an issue, um, one that really doesn't have a lot of partisan ties. Mm -hmm. And so um, when representatives were faced with you know, young women who have been victimized, it was very challenging for them to say, no, we're not going to support this bill. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. When we reached out to you, the quickness of your response had to do with a pre-existing love for books. And <laughs> I'm really excited to talk yeah. about that. One of your campaign promises, and we at What Are You Reading are going to hold you to this. So yeah. I hope you're, when yeah. you take your seat of power, remember this. You said you're going to ride the MARTA train. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, to work. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I rode the train um, all last session in, in 2017. Mm -hmm. Is that where you? Yeah. I rode the train in 2017. <laughs> yeah. I was chief of staff or representative of Sam Park. I rode the train in 2017. Oh, yeah. um, I was a bike commuter for many years. Um, I rarely touched my car, um, yeah. switched between biking and MARTA. Um, I and mean, I think fundamentally, a lot of times when we see people who represent us, we want to see something that we support reflected back in their mm -hmm. actions yeah. and not yeah. just words. Um, and I thought it was so funny that that got so many responses because for me, um, taking the train is a part of my life that I try to integrate um, into mm -hmm. as much as possible. And so yeah. I'm like, this is an easy promise that I would love to keep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd do it anyway. But yeah, I would do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what's interesting to me is I think sometimes we need our elected officials to be more human, yeah. Yeah. more relatable. Oh, yeah. um, mm -hmm. I want to see my elected official riding the train or riding a bike. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but the the um, my adult reading life. So I was as a kid, I was a fanatical reader. I'm sure all of yeah. us were. And then, like somewhere in the obligation of reading for school, um, I sort of lost the love. And but I used to take the train in. I lived in Chicago, and I used to mm. take the train into my office job. And the way my reading life as an adult got kicked back in was I would ride the train every day. So wow. I kind of want to ask you a question like, uh, not only will you pledge to ride the train, but what are you interested in reading on the train while you're going Shoot. into work? Okay, so 
Um, I actually take the time on the train to put away my phone, and oh, yeah. what I do mm. is I just look outside the window the whole okay. time. Okay. Oh, no, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Um, and yeah. you just kind of absorb the city, and you take yeah. in the quietness and have that moment where you're not obsessed with your cell phone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so it's a good moment for me to do that. Yeah. 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 It's funny, Ian, I, this is something, now, Ian and I have known each other for a long time, like five-ish years. I did not know this fact about Ian about taking the train because I kind of the same thing happened to me. I fell out of, you know, just out of the habit of reading. But living, I uh, lived in Moscow for a couple of years, had to take the train all the time. Yeah. And that's where reading picked back, picked like picked back yeah. up. And it was great because it was like 2009 ish. So it was like there weren't really, I mean, there were smartphones, but they're really expensive. So I just didn't have that like, um, barrier you know like i didn't have anything to play with. so it was like perfect i just had this book and i would just yeah. read as we went along and so that's really funny that that's how it came so out. that that line of getting at this may not have worked but so no, no. here's here's the question like along like you're very busy obviously yeah. as an activist and running for office um um and in your work at local high schools but uh kind of what along what lines do you read and are mm. you reading currently um Let's hear a little bit about that. Okay. Before I move on to that, I need to tell you guys about um, an Instagram page you need to follow called Hot Men Reading. (laughs) Um, Yes. Uh, And and there's also one, I think, that's specific to um, maybe reading on a train, on like subway. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer your question about reading, so I was an (laughs) avid reader growing up, Um, you know, Immigrant families are really fun in a lot of ways because um, some of the customs that we have are not anything like American traditions. Mm -hmm. So me getting in trouble meant I was up late reading a book in the closet. This happened a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That was my parents' idea of me being a bad kid. Um, And I distinctly remember one of my favorite reading experiences. I was probably about 11 years old. I was sitting in the closet of the playroom reading The Firm by Grisham. Yeah. And my heart was pounding. It was 5 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> and I just had to finish this book. Um, and I think that to me, um, in moments like that, where you distinctly remember what you're reading and how you feel, yeah. um, is my favorite thing about reading. Yeah. Um, it takes you to a place where you forget about everything else that's going on. Um, And when that happens, um, you know, you get so enraptured in what you're reading that I start slowing down because I don't want the book to end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I've had a couple reading experiences like that in my life. I'm the type of reader where I read the first page and I know if I'm I'm gonna finish it and if I mm. love the book, it's gonna be done in a day. Um, I'm not the type of reader who once I commit to a book, I finish it. Mm. Um, those to me are really disciplined readers that <laughs> I, I really envy because I, I don't have that. Although as one of those kind of readers, I've wasted a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> um, so for me, the, the, you know, the experience of, of reading has um, been really, tied to my identity as well because Mm -hmm. as a child you know I was reading um, all these books I was into Salinger into Sylvia Plath I was Mm -hmm. in this very dark like romantic (laughs) phase in life Um, and I would read you know I would read all of these books but never any of the characters were anything like me Um, and at some point in my life I discovered immigrant fiction and immigrant nonfiction. And suddenly I started seeing myself reflected in these characters or being really 
um, connected to them. Um, one of the first books um, I really felt that way about was The Namesake. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I remember finishing that book. It was in the middle of the night, and I just could not stop crying. Um, A Thousand Splendid Sons was the mm. same way. In mm. fact, when I finished it, I immediately flipped to the first page and started rereading it. Because wow. I think a lot of times you wow. miss certain things. Um, when I get so caught up in the plot of the book and I want to know what happens next, then sometimes I need to go back and see if I missed any details. Yeah. Um, and then there's this book called Free Food for Millionaires. <laughs> Um, that I literally stayed home from work one day to finish the whole book. <laughs> and to me, those are my favorite kinds of reading experiences. Yeah. When it's so good, you skip yeah. work and you oh, yeah. feel it's justified. <laughs> yeah. What is Free Food for Millionaires about? I haven't heard of it. It's um, it's a about a Korean-American woman who's really struggling to find the career path that her parents want her to take, which resonates with me because my parents really wanted me to be a doctor Mm. or a lawyer. Um, And then they said, at the very worst, I could be a pharmacist or an engineer. Um, (laughs) And then then I was an English major, and they just could not quite understand why I chose that path, Um, which is very ironic because my dad is a very good writer. Mm -hmm. It comes from him. Um, And so this book was about this woman's journey Mm. to really find her place. Um, And I connected with her and I also connected with her parents. And so it was something that I unexpectedly got so drawn into that I stayed home from work and read it. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned you you mentioned your dad and um, stop me if I'm getting like too personal. You you talked about um, during the Vietnam War, he was a political prisoner. Was yes. It? Yeah. Um, did did ha- so? How is his? Um, how has he reacted to you? Kind of going into political office. Like, has there been this encouragement? Like, how how has he kind of um, felt about it? Yeah. So interestingly enough, this is the favorite thing that I've ever done in my mm-hmm. life awesome. in terms of my dad. It's like mm-hmm. my dad's oh, favorite that. thing. Oh, wow. yeah, wow. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great that's, to hear. Yeah. yeah. So almost everything I've done in my life, he's just gives me a look like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> I do not get it. Yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. I don't actually think there's a Vietnamese word for nonprofit. So when I started my nonprofit, <laughs> it was hard to even explain to them what that, that was. Is, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, wow. When I was doing policy work, it was hard to explain to them what that was. I just mm-hmm. didn't have the language to actually literally translate this is the work that I'm doing wow. um, mm. but this I think is is something different um, yeah. my dad is really proud he's really excited oh, um, mm. and you know he checks in on me um, well they were checking in on me like almost every day um, <laughs> <laughs> they yeah they've slowed down a little bit um, and you know they would always want to know if I you know I was meeting my fundraising goals and so I would get oh, these man. daily texts from them that say, <laughs> how much you raise now, like every single day. (laughs) Um, So he's excited. He's really excited. I think he recognizes that um, the Asian American community historically has not had a lot of political power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he recognizes that we need more representation and diversity and voices. And he's really excited for me. Yeah. That's incredible. That's really encouraging. That's great. I am currently the favorite daughter, which has never happened. (laughs) Ever. Yeah, your siblings are going to listen to this and be like, Like, we're going to get her. I've I've always been the black sheep. I've always been the black sheep in the family. Always got in trouble. With just personality? Like, what was it that made you the black sheep? Just late nights reading. Yeah, Yeah. up late. Too much reading. (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, my sisters and I were all bookworms, so we all oh, got in trouble wow. for that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it was primarily because I didn't take the traditional mm-hmm. paths that they wanted me okay, to take. Yeah. And yeah. in um, Asian culture, that is, um, it's a huge personal risk that you take yeah. because your family really has a hard time understanding. Um, mm-hmm. They have a very limited perception of what success looks like, mm-hmm. and they're yeah. so incredibly afraid that um, you will end up in the same place that they were, yeah. which is everything yeah. that they earned mm-hmm. and had was taken away from them. And so they ultimately believe that um, your number one goal is to be financially secure, and um, they also care about the prestige behind it. And so yeah. for them, they just couldn't understand why I would be an English major and what would I, I would do with that. Yeah. Um, they didn't understand that, um, you know, I, <laughs> I'm an activist, um, you know, yeah. and, and that was dangerous to them because yeah. they lived in a war torn country and they saw what happened to people who spoke yeah. up against government. Um, yeah. and so, you know, they just didn't understand me at all. And yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of conflict with them growing up and we're in a much better place now. Oh, um, it wasn't until just a few years ago where they actually stopped urging me to go to law school. Um, and I think <laughs> it was because they recognized that, yes, I can run a nonprofit. I can do the work that I trust and the work that I believe in mm-hmm. um, and still be able to pay my bills. Yeah. 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 So oh, as yeah. you were as you were starting to read this like immigrant fiction and mm-hmm. immigrant nonfiction, was there a sense, because our, our last guest, uh, Judy Dominic, on this podcast was, um, her parents were from Taiwan, mm-hmm. and she had felt like, as there were certain, like, things she read or, or encountered that all of a sudden, like, alerted her to things her parents were carrying with them that she hadn't been aware of, did that sort of help you connect mm-hmm. back to some of their experiences, or... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it it creates um, a level of empathy for your parents because, um, you know, obviously when you are so close to people, sometimes you lack the empathy to be able to see them as anyone except for um, the role that they play in your life. So, yeah. um, yeah. So, you know, being able to see them in a different place, especially acclimating to um, the United States and kind of understanding, you know, how incredibly challenging it is and how lonely it is, um, you know, created a, a level of empathy for me that didn't necessarily always exist. Um, but it also made me feel uh, an obligation to figure out how I could further contribute back to society. Yeah. And so something mm-hmm. that you talked about was refugee resettlement. I actually resettled a family of nine Syrian refugees and yeah. yeah. um, And one of the biggest pieces for me was it was incredibly healing because um, growing up, I recognized my parents were very lonely. Um, There was a lot of trauma. There was a lot of silence. Everything was kind of unspoken. There was a lot of tension in the household that was related to um, conflict in the past and not being able to talk about it in any way. And so when I was working with this family, Um, I knew right away that I needed to be there for them um, every single week because I wanted to build a friendship because loneliness, I think, is Mm -hmm. often the biggest need. So people um, in in good intentions donate resources and they donate um, supplies, but I think it's harder to commit your time and energy. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I brought together a group and I said, if you want to be involved, we have to see the family every single week. Yeah. And we saw the family every single week for six wow. months. And I recognized so many things um, that my parents experienced in the family. And it was as simple as 
um, explaining to them what Halloween was. So my (laughs) mother said her first year in America, some kids knocked on her door on October 31st. She had no idea what Halloween was, and she opened the door. And she was perplexed. And so when she figured out they wanted candy and she didn't have any, she gave them fruit, which was really disappointing to the children. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they were like, we're not going back to that neighbor next year. Um, And But we bought costumes for the kids and we took them trick-or-treating in one of the Atlanta in-town neighborhoods. And so it was kind of watching them experience all these things for the first time that my parents experienced and my cousins experienced. and it's really basic little things that are really exciting and things that we take for granted. We got, um, so interestingly enough, one of the girls in the family, we share the same birthday. And so oh, wow. we took her bowling. She just turned 11 and we bought her a Polaroid camera. And they oh, were wow. so incredibly fascinated with this idea that you could create an image instantaneously. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, it's a lot of things like that that are so incredibly um, humbling, mm-hmm. um, but so incredibly fun. And, and you just can't replace those experiences with um, money or resources. Yeah. It's Absolutely. that human connection yeah. that continually reminds you um, yeah. of why you, you need to be involved with people and community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. But, uh, my wife worked at World Relief in Clarkson. Oh, good. We had the big, the biggest issue was getting people to like actually get to know lives like it was really easy to get like the one time you know give resources do something fun on this one particular date but like to actually put in the effort of like okay no we actually want you to like get to know this person get to know this family yeah that was always the the it was always the less we'd have less volunteers you know It it was less um less popular than just like the the flashy kind of fun yeah engagement you know like outreach type stuff but yeah yeah so you do work that requires a lot of energy, a lot of compassion and creativity. Does your reading sort of center around what you do or the issues you care about? Or do you pull from, like, do you read it sometimes to escape? What role does reading fill in your life? So um, I do think that reading is a form of escape um, because you get so caught up in the stories that you forget about everything else. But mm-hmm. most of what I read is very closely aligned with the type of work that I'm doing. Um, so it's not necessarily an escape from work, um, but it is escape from, I think, the the day-to-day obligations and responsibilities. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I read a lot of heavy stuff, um, but I enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I don't do a whole lot of light reading, I know. It's, it's kind of, I'm trying to think of memoir reading i think sometimes is um the light reading i do like yeah. some of the funny stuff um aziz or yeah. um yeah <laughs> yeah so that that's a good escape that's like good beach reading um but most of what i'm reading currently has been pretty heavy yeah, yeah. i think i was thinking of aziz and and uh um my closest co-worker is uh second generation korean mm-hmm. um and there's sort of this interesting space for like there's a heated conversation about race going on in the country yeah yeah and it's normally perceived as a black and white conversation mm-hmm. um so, but the uh my friends who are asian american are filling this really interesting space in the conversation really valuable and much needed you mentioned aziz and his his stuff and i was thinking like there there is a lot of literature now that even that i'm aware of that's like first generation immigrant mm-hmm. literature is there with such a great history of immigration in in America and to America, is there an emerging like 
uh, set of narratives for like besides Aziz Ansari <laughs> for like second generation immigrants who are filling this really super interesting spot in our in our culture. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, a really good memoir is uh, Fresh Off the Boat. Um, okay. It's very funny, but I think what's interesting is there's a lot of um, what you mentioned is talking about race in more nuanced and complex terms. Yeah. Um, and I also think, you know, in reading a book like that, um, you realize that the glossy picture that we've painted of Asian American families is not that true. Mm. Um, I think what we often don't talk about is there are um, high levels of victimization, high levels of abuse, um, and all of those things are kind of hidden. Um, And so when you read a book like that and you kind of recognize those things going on in the family, um, and it's bringing it to the light, um, but also in a very funny, relatable way, Mm -hmm. um, you see there are a lot of intersections between... between race and identity and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we were able to um, have other people read books like that, um, you would recognize that we are not, in fact, this model minority that we've been mm-hmm. painted out to be. And we have so much more in common that with other communities of color um, than yeah. the way that we've been painted out. Yeah. 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 Is there, so we're staying on the topic of books, has there been any uh, books, whether, whether in immigrant fiction, nonfiction, but books that have kind of helped you along the way as far as like, you're running for office, you're involved in politics. Are there any books that maybe have influenced you just in not, maybe not even just how you're running, but also certain issues that are significant or important to you? Um, this might put you on the spot, but yeah, like, is there anything that's like really kind of like stood out that's kind of influenced the direction you're going in maybe? Not necessarily politically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I read um, plays, you know, a part in, in just what I care about daily, yeah, right? Yeah. So I was thinking about um, the thesis I wrote Uh, when I was in graduate school. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the books that I wrote about was The Bluest Eye, um, Toni Mm -hmm. Morrison. And, um, you know, really looking at sexual assault um, in fiction and seeing Mm -hmm. what the parallels are to the way we treat it in real life. Um, Because oftentimes survivors um, are not protected by the system um, and are not protected by family members and friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... I remember, you know, I had written a thesis about this and just examining the the similarities and, and the differences be, between how we address them. And honestly, there were so many similarities. It's always silencing uh, victims um, and not really allowing um, victims to have a space to, to either heal or to seek any kind of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, it was four different pieces of fiction that I looked at, um, and one was um, uh, South African lit, and the mm-hmm. others were American lit. And then now when I'm thinking back and reflecting back, you know, it's been a theme in my life where I've worked with victims of sexual assault, not just through the rape kit bill, but in my everyday life working with high school girls, mm-hmm. um, we cover domestic violence and sexual mm-hmm. assault and have done a lot of work with that. Um, and what's happened is over the many years I've been doing this work, girls start to share their stories of past victimization um, and it's horrific and so I think that you know it's present in in all the things that I do and I think sometimes we don't necessarily recognize the influence that books have on us Um, Mm -hmm. and and so I think it's um, probably a chicken and the egg thing it's like you start to read about more things that you're involved with and then what you read influences um, your day-to-day involvement and the things that you care about Um, And so that's the connection that that I can make with that. Um, Hmm. 
And then occasionally you read things that are just, you know, really open your eyes or mm -hmm. um, teach you about something you didn't know about at all. And I remember one of my favorite reading experiences <laughs> was reading a book called, um, it was about uh, Nim Chimsky, the chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. about Project Nim. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yes. I was going through something <laughs> particularly challenging, and I think NPR maybe did a segment on it. And I said, yeah, this sounds pretty interesting. So I ordered the book. And that was a book that I read within a day and really wow. did not care about anything that was going on in my life after yeah, yeah. I read that book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So then I subsequently had this chimpanzee party, and we had um, served all of Nim's favorite food. So he loved pizza, cantaloupe, awesome. and yeah. asked everybody to come make a contribution. Um, that we could send over to the chimpanzee sanctuary mm -hmm. and then Man. forced everybody to watch the documentary Project yeah. NIM. Yeah. 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 Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so great. <laughs> yeah. I think if, like, people who have active reading lives, you get you get this really interesting, like, the, the books flow into your everyday mm -hmm. perceptions and mm -hmm. actions. Yeah. But then yeah. your actions and perceptions kind of flow into... Mm -hmm. uh, flow into what you read as well yeah yeah so uh, moving forward like i don't know I'll, well two kind of a two-part question how do you organize your to read list do you have a way of organizing it and what's coming up like what are you interested in reading next oh man i am not organized at all with reading lists <laughs> i'm the same <laughs> but i thought i'd ask <laughs> um and as a candidate it's been really challenging to find any space to do anything normal yeah um so if we were in a book it program i would have no stars on my book it button um <laughs> yeah we'd have no stars right now but what i really want to read next is um there's an author um who wrote a book called um everything i never told you hmm. um it is about a young woman who committed suicide um and her parents had no idea that she was suicidal in the first place it's an extremely heartbreaking book really good um, it's also immigrant fiction. She's um, Asian-American. Hmm. And this same author has written a second book that just came out last week. Um, and I want to get my hands on it. I actually saw my sister went to the book signing and she had posted about it on Instagram. And I think I was maybe knocking on doors or something at the time. <laughs> I was very, yeah. very jealous. So um, that is on my next next reading list, or next book to read. And then um, I get a subscription to the Paris Review. So I have a couple mm. of Paris Reviews that oh, I need yeah. to read. Um, something really interesting for me is I've actually been taking some memoir writing classes. Oh, wow. um, and I find myself writing about my family history all the time. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I got into this new genre called creative nonfiction. And yeah. they have a conference in Pittsburgh every year. Mm. Um, so I started integrating some travel and in, in books wow. and writing together because um, – you know, you just have to find that space to read and yeah. write. And if you don't make that space, then it probably never happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I traveled to that conference, which was really fun. Um, Pittsburgh oh, yeah. is a really underrated city. Um, and, and there were some amazing panels in there and people talking about writing um, about, you know, most of the time people are writing about family trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and a woman, um, she told the story of her aunt who had a mental health, uh, she had mental health issues and she disappeared and they never found her. Um, and so she has spent 10 years just in immersive study to be able wow. to write about her aunt. And mm. she would just pour through all these letters. Um, 
and she'd archive everything. Um, she called it, you know, her archive collection so that she could write this one piece that she'd been working on for a decade. Um, and so I'm, I'm always in this constant state where I'm writing small pieces about my family and trying to think of, um, you know, how I can continue to do that and, and really capture their story because yeah. Um, one thing I am concerned about is once everybody in my family dies and that generation who um, came from Vietnam is gone, there will be nothing um, concrete left uh, to yeah. share with uh, the next generation. Um, mm. So I've been doing some writing. My sister has been doing some documenting. Wow. Um, and I've really encouraged my dad to, to write because he's a very good writer. Um, wow. And I want his stories to be captured. Um, I do think there are challenges because of trauma um, where he may not want to necessarily bring those things up. Um, but he told me he would consider it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask, I was going to ask, uh, like, if you had a book in you, yeah. what kind of book would it be? You kind of answered it before yeah, we asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it would definitely be memoir writing um, yeah. wow. as it relates to family experiences. Um, wow. There's this really great memoir writing class um, at Callenwald. Um, and the instructor's name is June Cease. Um, she's a wonderful woman who has been teaching this class for many, many years. She's very stern and no nonsense. And she's got these perfectly polished black nails. Um, and she, she's, she's a wonderful instructor. Um, and so I took a class from her pretty recently. Um, and so I would encourage anybody who has any kind of interest in writing to take her class. Mm -hmm. um, I think. I need a lot of structure. Mm -hmm. I don't have the discipline to be able to write on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, but once this campaign is over, um, you know, I'll make that space to, to be able to actually be in some sort of class where I can actively write. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's, that's, all, that's so encouraging. That's, yeah. we, I, let us know because we'll be the first to, to jump in and want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> so real quick, if people have listened to this and, mm -hmm. and either they weren't familiar with you before or what you're, what you're doing, um, where can, it, can they find you online? What's a good way to... Yeah, they can definitely find me online. So um, the website is www.beforgeorgia.com and okay. everything's spelled out B-E-E-F-O-R and then Georgia spelled out dot com. Mm -hmm. um, I'm on Facebook. It's B for Georgia. Same thing, all spelled out. <laughs> Twitter's the same. Um, awesome. So you can find me on any of those... Um, those social media platforms and mm -hmm. of course anybody can email me too it's so it's bee at b4georgia.com all spelled out awesome okay well, and she responds very quickly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well b we're super thankful to have yeah, you here really this are. has been a great conversation uh if people want to look up any of the books that she mentioned on the podcast mm -hmm. there will be a goodreads list it'll also be listed on our website what are you reading mm -hmm. podcast.com yep from there you can uh find us on facebook twitter instagram all the all the places you're probably at already um, at our website, you can find the links to that. And yeah. as always, we ask that you um, subscribe in iTunes, but also rate and review us there. That kind of helps us out a little bit. And we it always makes us feel like warm and fuzzy inside, like it, people are listening and they <laughs> yeah. like us. Uh, it feels great. So thank you for that, and also thank you to Atlanta Vintage Books. Yeah, we, great uh, bookstore. It kind of dawned on me. I don't really tell them when we're coming to record. And like today, I just waltzed, waltzed on in with my gear, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, you guys don't know I'm recording a like." I always think in my mind that they're somehow in on the, they know what's happening. I'm like, no, "Yeah, they, I've never told them." And so they're yeah. amazing. They're so gracious. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, thanks to them. And um, if you come in, which we hope you do, get some books. And if you uh, mention, say, if you say Ian and Tim or Tim and Ian sent you, yeah. they give you ten percent off, which is really gracious and generous, and um, we love them. They're the best. Yeah. So normally at this point, uh, if you've listened to us at all, you know we end with a book quote. 
But today we're going to pass it off to B. Take it away. So I recently did a fundraising ask. I turned 36, so we were looking for um, 89 donors from District 89 to give $36. We had 13 <laughs> people left, and so I said, uh-huh. when I was 13, I was obsessed with The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton, and I included this quote in my fundraising ask. <laughs> I've been thinking about it in that poem, that guy that wrote it. He meant your gold when you're a kid, like green. When you're a kid, everything's new, dawn. It's just that when you get used to everything, like the way you dig sunsets, pony, that's gold. Keep it that way. It's a good way to be. Stay gold. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening.